Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Rudy Kurtler from Sawgrass Capital Partners. Before we dive in, I want to ask a real quick favor. Would you mind taking an extra 30 seconds and heading over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? That means the absolute world to me if you could leave a review of the show. So thank you guys so much for doing that. All right, let's dive in. Rudy began investing in real estate in 2007 as a means to diversify his investments as he had been overweighted in growth stocks. Rudy and his brother-in-law bought their first mobile home park almost by accident as they continued to get shut out of multifamily investing. Currently, Rudy is exploring 3D printed housing so that they can vertically integrate construction of the 3D homes and fill in the remaining gaps inside of their mobile home parks and outside. Rudy, we are excited to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here. Andrew, thank you. I'm excited to be here as well. Awesome. Maybe you can start out by telling our listeners a little about your story and how you got into manufactured housing communities. Absolutely. So like you mentioned, so early in, you know, kind of 2007, my brother-in-law and I had been looking at opportunities to invest together. I had, uh, I worked for your Best Buy company back in from 1995 till 2018. And during that time in the early 2000s, Best Buy company stock had done incredibly well, and I was looking for a way to diversify to uh, limit some of my risk. And so what we had done is my brother-in-law and I had started talking about investing in, in single family homes or trying to find multifamily, whatever we could get our hands on. And so we just began by buying a couple of single family homes, converted them from two bedrooms into four bedrooms in the town that he lives in, which is a college community in Eastern South Dakota. And so that was a, you know, just an opportunity for me to kind of be the money guy and him to be the uh, sweat equity guy in our partnership. And um, we ultimately ended up buying about a home a year. So in that first six years, we bought six single family homes. Every one of them had some form of conversion where we added bedrooms or added space and made them more valuable from a rental standpoint. And so our excitement for multifamily certainly outpaced our ability to get our hands on some of the multifamily in the town that we were in. And, you know, because he was going to be the sweat equity guy, I wanted to be buying stuff that was in town for him. So it wasn't too complicated and he didn't have to travel and those kinds of things. And so, but as you mentioned, also kind of as part of the introduction is we were getting shut out. And so the town that we are in is relatively small. It's about 25,000 people. It's got a division one NCA university there. And it is a, you know, they've got a, about 15 to 17,000 students. And so it's a very strong rental market as a whole, but because it's a smaller town, there were, you know, the majority of the multifamily properties and the multifamily, the, the lots that were zoned for multifamily were owned by uh, most of the same people. So there's about three families that own probably about 90 plus percent of, of um, multifamilies in that town. So we're having a hard time breaking in. And so then we did on accident, we found a, a small park five miles to the west of town in another small town that was, that was listed on a, um, it was kind of hidden on the local 
real estate page because it was kind of tucked away in the commercial listings. And we were always looking at those, you know, we were looking at single family houses kind of weekly and uh, we found it kind of tucked in there and we thought, well, this is interesting. And so we started asking questions and we called the broker, we called our broker, we got together and um, actually, actually overpaid for that park on purpose because I knew that the upside was going to be so, so incredible. And so uh, a lot of people say, you know, you make all your money on the buy and there's a lot of truth to that, but I think there's also truth to the fact that you don't make any money when you don't buy. And, and so we, we wanted to make sure that we got that property. I, I didn't overpay by a lot. I overpaid by like five grand. I think I gave them 5,000 more than their, their ask price. And so I just want to make sure we had our hands on it because I could see the potential. It was, you know, 13 acres of land. Uh, it was only developed on about six acres. And so, yeah, and we still own that park today. It, it's, uh, it's been a fun ride. Very cool. And, and are you talking about Brookings, South Dakota? I am. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I'm not sure if you knew this or not, but I went to college in Sioux Falls. You're kidding. Uh, I wow. went no, I to uh, Augustana. Yeah. Okay. Augustana University. I played football in college up there and awesome. love, uh, love Eastern South Dakota. Yeah. Uh, we also own a park in Vermilion where you, where USD is located. Very nice. Uh, a much smaller town, but yeah, Brookings <laughs> is a great market. I would love to own there. Yeah. Um, tell us awesome. about that first park. How many lots was that? That's a 21 lot park. When we bought it, it had eight RV sites, RV pads on it as mm. well. And it also has a commercial building that we rent out to a local builder. And just for fun, it's got a billboard on the corner. And we didn't know that when we bought it. Yeah, it wasn't part of the disclosure, wow. wasn't part of the listing. But yeah, there's a billboard on the corner. And so that brings us about $1,200 a year. <laughs> we didn't know it was even going to happen. But, but like I mentioned, because it was essentially it was only taking up half of the available land we had visions of expanding the park uh, and or the rv sites and what we did is we ended up ultimately expanding the rv sites and we took it from eight sites to 16 and we've infilled the remaining two empty pads that were that were on the park and uh, with mobile homes and so it's a small park uh, but i think it's a perfect park for us to cut our teeth on and kind of really get you know, get experience and learn. And we learned a lot about the RV site demand, which actually was an, a, a really nice surprise that we were, were not expecting. My, my assumptions going in had always been that well, RV sites in a, in a mobile home park on a relatively major highway are probably going to be people that are passing through and nightly rentals, and it's not going to amount to much. Well, we were pleasantly surprised when we found out there is a massive demand for long-term RV site rentals in some areas. It's, it's you know fairly hit and miss, but in that particular area, there's a lot of infrastructure projects that were happening. So just across the street, there was a, an ethanol plant being built, and that ethanol plant was going to take two years to build. There was some highway construction, other factories being built, and so the construction workers would haul their RVs in, and they would live in them for up to two years while they were working on a project. We actually had one resident that was there for two years. And so we found a huge demand by accident on that as well. But but it's because awesome. we kind of dug in and asked questions and we learned about it. So yeah. So tell us how many lots are you up to now with Sawgrass Capital? How many well parks so we have you? yeah so we have 12 total parks now and we have just under 500 uh, total lots. 
And so awesome. And where are those mainly located? Is it around the Dakotas? Yep. We have predominantly it's in South Dakota in Eastern South Dakota. And we have, so we have nine parks in Eastern South Dakota. We have three in Texas. We formed a partnership with two uh, wonderful ladies down in Texas and got to meet them and, and some of their network and contacts. And we bought, uh, bought three parks down on a trip down there. Wow. How did that happen? How did you meet people in Texas from South Dakota? Right. Uh, yeah. The, the, the wonders of the internet and social media. <laughs> and, and it was, it was uh, my business partner had been, he'd been fairly active on Facebook and, and letting people know that we're in the real estate world and looking to buy parks. And uh, these ladies were uh, in a position where they were looking for some operational experience or expertise, you know, somebody to help them, help guide them, uh, as well as some capital. And we happened to be in a position where we had just started our uh, fund and we, we had some capital and we had some operational expertise. So it became a win-win. Um, we had a wonderful opportunity, wonderful time meeting with the ladies and like I said, kind of their, their network. One of the ladies, her, her father owns something north of 50 um, mobile home parks and RV parks down in Texas. And so he's a, he's a wow. fairly big player down there. And he, um, I, I applaud him. He actually had said directly to me and he said, listen, I, I want to help my daughter, but I'm going to, I'm going to give her, how did he frame it? He says, I'm going to give her a hand up. I'm not going to give her a hand out. And so, you know, the mindset being, hey, I'll help her, I'll guide her, but I'm not going to give it to her. She's got to go earn it. And so she had to come and find us or whoever was going to partner with her. And so that's been a really, really great partnership. And, and we've had a, a lot of fun and a lot of learnings uh, collectively. Very cool. That is yeah. fantastic. A couple of quick questions. Uh, tenant owned homes versus park owned homes. Which do you guys prefer? We, we swing toward the tenant owned side. And so we like the fact of when a tenant owns it, there's, there's some intangible, um, kind of hard to measure benefits when a tenant owns it and it's theirs versus if it's a rental mobile home, you know, it's kind of like a rental car, right? So generally speaking, people take, take better care of their own cars than they take care of a rental car. And that's kind of what we found with the, with the homes. And so, especially when a home gets a bit older. So we don't mind owning a rental mobile home to get it to season and get it to depreciate a little bit and when it's brand new. But once it gets to three to five years old, we really look to try to offload those, get them off our books and get the tenant to buy it and really, you know, have ownership. And so that does a, a number of things. One, it's, you know, their pride of ownership and it can show up. Um, you know, we're not really on the hook for the repairs and maintenance at that point. Anything, obviously anything above ground is up to the tenant or resident. Um, and then, you know, it, it's simpler, honestly, it's simpler to manage. Yeah. You know, you totally don't agree. Calls. You don't have to that's play. ours as well. That's our model is the tenant owned home. And I know our listeners from listening to previous episodes, they, I think they prefer that as well, but there are some yeah. park owned home operators out there. So I always like to ask there are. that. Oh, Let me are. ask you what? this. When did you buy that first park? Sorry. I, I forgot to ask that the 21th okay. lot one. Yeah. We bought that first park in 2015. 2015. Yeah. So we went you for guys a have been cooking. kind of with our single families. And then we finally stumbled into that park. Yep. That's awesome. So you guys have been cooking. I mean, 12 parks, just under 500 lots uh, ever yep. since then. Uh, yep. That is, that is fantastic. 
how did you like when you got into the business, how did you get educated on mobile home parks? Like prior to buying that first park or maybe after that first park? Well, it, every day is an education. Let me say that first, right? <laughs> so we're, we're still learning every single day that there's, there's so many um, nuances, but the, a couple things. So one, our realtor and Brookings um, owned three mobile home parks himself. And he, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, is one of those rare breeds where he believes in owning all the homes. And so he he has one park where I think all but one house are, are you know, belongs to him and then that last one. But anyway, but uh, we learned a lot from him, um, just kind of his approach, his methodology. And he's uh, one of these kinds of guys. He's just very direct and blunt in terms of how he looks at um, life in general and how he looks at investments. So he's, he's got a, a good point of view, which we learned from. We spent a bit of time listening to many podcasts. We spent a bit of time listening to Mobile Home University podcasts with Frank and Dave. I think there's probably a lot of awareness of their names, I'm sure. But have um, you attended the boot camp? We, we did not attend a boot camp. Um, okay. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, Tell one us of our about... business partners did, and, and he found us after he had attended that boot camp. And, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Tell us about the parks you have. Do you have a preference on the utility infrastructure, or do you have some with private utilities, some with public? Maybe shed some light on that. Yeah, the, the, the preference is the public utilities. You know, anywhere where we can get away from, you know, having septic or having wells, uh, it gives us more... Uh, comfortability sleeping at night but that doesn't sure. mean we don't buy them and you know we still have i would say our mix is probably 50 50 we've got as an example the first park that we bought had well water and still has septic we did convert okay. it to rural water uh, service a couple of years ago it cost us about fifty thousand dollars to convert that and you know, get the piping to run over and you know, hookups mm. and whatnot and so we we felt it was worth it from a value of the park standpoint and convenience um, and, and efficiency. But generally speaking, we, we'd like to see, you know, somebody else own that, you know, side of, of the park, um, you know, running the park, I guess, is, you know, they're, that's what they sure. do, <laughs> right? We're not experts at running, you know, managing a well or managing septics, but. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Public is always preferred. Okay. That's awesome. And before you got into this, I know you did some stuff on the single family side of things. But I saw, you know, something about on LinkedIn about yep. the salon business yep. and how are you still in that or, or you were in yep. that previously? That was your W-2. Maybe yep. you could shed a little bit of light on that because, you know, I think a lot of our listeners uh, just from you know, various conversations I've had, uh, people kind of get into mobile home parks uh, creative ways and they, yep. they have creative backgrounds. Yep. So would love to hear a little bit about the salon business and, and yep. where you're at with yeah, like I mentioned, I was with Best Buy Company for quite a number of years. I was with them for 22 years. I live here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, in the Twin Cities area. And Best nice. Buy Corporation is, is based here in the Twin Cities. And, and it's an incredible company. The One of the challenges with that company is they restructure quite often based on customer demand and changing you know economics and whatnot of the consumer electronics industry. And, and that creates some can create some turmoil internally in terms of what kind of jobs people end up in and where they are. And with restructures, there's always shuffling. And, you know, I always tell people I was, I was worked out of a job seven times inside of Best Buy in 22 years. And so part of corporate America that a lot of people don't maybe don't know about if they're not part of it is that that is, that's commonplace or it can be commonplace. And so 
by the time I had number seven, my number got called the seventh time I was just getting kind of frankly tired of it. And so I started looking externally. I had never looked externally in the previous 21 years. And so I just said, you know what, I, I'm ready for something else. Well, another company that was down the street from Best Buy uh, was, was headquartered in the Twin Cities as well. And that was Regis Hair Salons. And Regis was the largest private operator of hair salons in the world with about 11,000 hair salons. And they needed a regional vice president. And so I interviewed with them. It was, it was a long process. It took, it took about nine months. But finally, um, went over and, and became a regional vice president to them and and ran quite a number of salons and i i'm still in the salon industry they have since interestingly enough so i was trying to leave best buy because they're restructuring and then after about three years of being a regis yeah surprise surprise they restructured as well and they said we're going to sell all of our corporate owned salons and we're going to franchise all of them and uh and so um you know i i had an opportunity to uh, stay in the salon industry and became a chief operations officer for one of the largest franchisees that Regis has. And I'm still with them today. And transparently, I've told them all about what we're doing at Sawgrass Capital Partners and told them I've got the bandwidth and capacity, I believe, to do well with them and help them uh, do what they want. And so they've been very, very comfortable with it. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Yeah. Maybe uh, tell us about Sawgrass Capital Partners. I, I heard you mention you guys have a fund. You know, yep. is that still open? You're doing another one. Would love to hear about that. Yeah, for sure. So we, when we started Sawgrass Capital Partners, one of my partners from Best Buy back in 2007, six and seven, right? When my brother and I were starting, I, I had approached him and said, hey, would you be interested in joining us on buying some rental real estate? And because he and I had talked for a number of times and, and he expressed some interest in doing something. He just wasn't sure what. And he passed. He said, no, I'm okay. I'm not going to jump in. So then my brother-in-law and I uh, started our first company, which was not Sawgrass. It was a different company. Well, fast forward a number of years, and, and he actually got into the franchise space. He's a franchise consultant, and he sells franchises to interested individuals. And he had begun to ask me now questions about, hey, would you like to buy this franchise? Or should we open up you know, certain different options. And, and I couldn't get my head wrapped around the franchise side um, as easily as I could get my head wrapped around the real estate side. And so I actually flipped the conversation on him and said, Hey, why don't we kind of expand and try to, you know, I've been thinking about how we pull investors in and go a little bit bigger. Um, and would you have an interest in that? And I couldn't get the words out of my mouth before he had already said yes. And he says, I'm in, <laughs> I messed up in 2007. I'm in. And, and so we formed Sawgrass Capital Partners. So my, it was my brother-in-law, me, and our third partner, Mike. And we, we formed that in uh, December of 2019. And so our first project was in Brookings that we had, had pulled together and syndicated. We knew nothing about syndication. We didn't understand the process. We didn't understand how much it was going to cost. And we got hooked up with a, a very intelligent attorney here in the Twin Cities, which if anybody's going to syndicate, I highly recommend you get yourself a qualified attorney uh, because it'll cover you in uh, more ways than you can think. But ultimately, he uh, his style was very interesting because he didn't tell us what to do. He said, well, essentially, whatever you tell me to do, I'll write it down into the essentially the operating agreement and the PPM. And so that 
as inexperienced syndicators, we didn't really, it cost us a lot to ask more questions, better questions, because we tried something, didn't work, tried something else, didn't work, you know, so it became trial and error. But we learned a ton. And in that first investment, we, we were able to um, uh, exceed our expectations and exceed the investors' expectations. And we were able to get them their capital back uh, seven months after we had syndicated and bought the park by, you know, with all the, the work that we did and we refinanced in seven months and got them their capital back and we're still paying them their um, quarterly cash flow distributions on that park. So they are, they're fans. Uh, yeah. they're, they're pretty happy uh, while we did that. So while we're running down that path, we also said, gosh, we'd like to go a little bit bigger and created a fund. We did a small fund. It was 3 million bucks. And we figured we'd buy a few parks, maybe here and there. Um, but what happened was that was kind of right as the pandemic was really gaining steam. It was in 2020. And so we learned a ton about that as well, right? So just because somebody verbally commits to some capital doesn't mean that they're going to be able to come in at the time when you need it. And so having backup plans and you just there's just a ton of absolute ton of learnings by going through the process. So definitely. Yeah, definitely. What's the, what's like the uh, long-term plan for Sawgrass and for the funds? Are you guys looking to aggregate and sell off to a bigger owner? Or are you looking to buy and hold these things? What's like the long-term plan for you guys? Yeah. The, the long-term plan is a little bit fluid. We've said we've got about a flat four to five year whole plan on these parks and the fund and the first syndication. And that, um, what we've also learned is how we structured the preferred returns and the first syndication and the fund makes it challenging if the market is hot because you can't buy the, buy the parks at a low enough value, right? There's not a meat on a bone to really generate that preferred return. And so that became challenging for us. Another good lesson learned. But long answer to your question is we were fluid on that because we've got our parks running at a really nice rate right now collection you know our collections are incredible infill rate's been great you know the operations have been solid but we're not going to turn a blind eye or a you know deaf ear to a good offer and we've got a number of folks that have been approaching us and asking questions there are people that are willing to come in and buy you know 400 lots at a time and um if we can come to terms on the table then we will uh, but we're also not necessarily we're not pursuing sales on, on everything. We've got one park that we just listed. We've got a couple others, two of the ones down in Texas we listed recently, but that's just to kind of see what the market will, will bear. Okay. How do you guys handle operations? What does your team look like from a property management standpoint? Yep. So we have, we do have park managers. And so out of our dozen parks, we've got, I think five managers. Uh, we leverage one of our park managers as kind of a district manager. And then Mike, who I mentioned earlier is, is you know, one of, one of our um, equity partners is he's a strong operator. And so his wheelhouse is actually helping bring concepts to life, you know, so taking ideas and helping them become actionable. And so he, he manages the park managers and manages kind of the district manager is the best way to explain it. Um, and then Alan, who's my brother-in-law, is the um, he's kind of our capex or infill guy. Uh, so he handles anything related to roads, trees, um, demolition of old homes, and, and removal of old, old homes to, to bring in new homes. 
and primarily he's focused in South Dakota. And, uh, and then our partners down in Texas handle a lot of their uh, local you know, stuff locally. But they, they have used a local contractor, general contractor to help with an expansion of one park for a lot of the CapEx. Uh, but then they do have two park managers that they manage through down there. Very nice. Uh, what mistakes in mobile home park investing uh, have you made that we could learn from? Uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> there's, I, there's been a ton, but I think there's also, you know, there's a school of thought of, you know, you learn by doing, you learn by asking, you learn by talking to people, you, you kind of get in, you skin your knee, you say, okay, that didn't feel so good. Let's not do that again. Uh, or, hey, that maybe, maybe it wasn't the, you know, the concept that was wrong. Maybe it was just how we executed. And so I think it's, we always take a very uh, cerebral approach to um, what we're trying to do. And we try to think through consequences and ask the what if questions. But mistakes that we've made have included, you know, anywhere from, you know, having a weak, uh, you know, not a great lease process at the beginning. We didn't have a great uh, bookkeeping process at the beginning. We were doing stuff on Excel spreadsheets and we thought that was good enough. And, you know, we, we made mistakes on one part that we bought and we've since sold with the due diligence. Um, man, there's so many learnings in that part. But, but I think there were great learnings because we applied all those learnings to the future parks that we bought. Things like finding out that, you know, what the, you know, what the amperage is for the hookups and what, what requirement we have. And it was an old park and so they had old wiring and we're trying to bring in a brand new home or new homes. And so that ended up becoming very expensive. And a question we never thought to ask was what kind, what's underneath the dirt? Well, what's underneath the dirt was bedrock. And so that created quite the problem when you had to anchor that thing down and we had no expertise in doing it ourselves. And so, you know, we lost time and lost some dollars. Um, and, and here's, I think, a, a really interesting one that some of the operators would appreciate. I'm not sure how much investors would appreciate, but the operators would appreciate is um, thinking differently about the problem and thinking differently about the solution. I'll give you an example. So the, the part that I'm referencing, where we got a lot of learnings with the bedrock underneath the dirt. We had, we'd been, and it was, a, it was an older park and so all the lots were very small, but adjacent still in the park there was some vacant land it was it was two long uh two acre parcels and so this adjacent lot really just had a single family home at the front of the lot and the back of the lot was all vacant and so we kept thinking about well how do we get these new homes into these small pads we gotta get these new homes into these small pads well and and it took us a while and, and it was probably a year into that project. And we finally actually said, we got to ask the question differently or think of the answers differently. And instead of getting, you know, small homes into small lots, we said, why couldn't we just move the road that went down the middle of that park into the middle of the two parcels? And I could put whatever size home I want on either side of that road. And it's just like, you know, it just finally dawned on us, like we're thinking about this problem all backwards. And and so how you ask the questions really becomes important. And we've used that principle and that learning that we had in that, that part, you know, five years ago, we've used it probably 10 or 15 times since where we're stuck, or like we're stuck on an answer. So we say, okay, how do we move the road, right? That becomes kind of our, our you know, internal code of think differently about the problem, think differently about the potential solution. I love that. Yeah. Always looking for different creative solutions. Yep. Uh, let me ask you this. What are the most important things you think passive investors, you know, limited partners here, 
what are the most important things they need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks? Well, I think investing with anybody, I think first thing is, you know, transparency. I think transparency of, you know, are, are people forthcoming with, you know, the wins and the losses, right? So I think there, it's probably going to be pretty rare that somebody goes, you know, any investor goes in and there's all wins, right? It's just nothing but good news. Well, that's, that's kind of unusual. So it kind of goes back to the old adage of no like and trust the group that you want to invest with. Uh, start there. But I think the other part is um, understanding what kind of product the investors are buying. Um, are the investors buying, you know, just a straight up, you know, buy and hold, it's already filled in. It's, it's a, you know, turnkey type property. Well, that, that's one, you know, that's certainly one way to do it. And and what's the strategy if it's turnkey? Is the, is the limited, uh, I'm sorry, the general partner going in and all they're going to do is raise lot rents and put pressure on people that are having a hard time the way it is, or are they finding a way to work with people and gradually bring the lot rents up? And so our strategy has been that we, we come in, we work with people, we, we convert them over to electronic payment system. We, we do take rents up, but we don't take them up dramatically. We take them up maybe 25 bucks in the first year, we give them another year and we just let them know ahead of time, hey, you're gonna see annual lot rent increase. And it's gonna probably go from 25 the first year, $15 the second, $15 a third. And just over time, we just gradually taking the lot rents up. And if that is more, let's just say that's a little more humane, way to treat people versus you come in and you jack rents up and you double their rents or you take them up 50%. And my brother sent me a tongue in cheek uh, article the other, the other day from wall street journal. And he's, and he's referenced a couple of um, investment groups that were taking rents up 50% on day one when they bought, bought parks. That's just inhumane. And so he's teasing me. He said, Hey, is this your strategy too? <laughs> I said, no, of course not. Obviously being my brother, he wanted to have rouse me a little bit, <laughs> but <laughs> You know, certainly not. You know, we're looking for win-wins, right? We're looking for an opportunity to be humane and 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 help people that are in a tough spot, but also we're also not a charity, right? We're we're here to, you know, we're here to make a profit. And we're here to do it well, and we want to be in the game long term. And um, so we're not we're not interested in playing some of those other games that people play. But those those would be Definitely. things that I would call out. Yeah, definitely. What does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes, and why? Man, oh man, that's a that's a good question. So I think the perfect <laughs> mobile home park has good infrastructure. So it's got solid bones, you know, the good, um, you know, good utilities, good roads. Um, I think it's got infill opportunities. So it's it's not um, it's got to be fifty percent or more full already. But there should be some upside in terms of ability to bring in more homes. And I think it should probably be close to market, but below market. And the reason I say that is. Uh, if it's close to market, then that would imply that we probably, you know, it's probably an engaged owner that's been paying attention and, you know, gradually increasing rents for people. So they're not too comfortable at something that's, you know, ridiculously below market. Um, and in some parks that we've underwritten and we've seen, um, not only are the, are the rents below and they're kind of ridiculous, but then the quality of the park actually correlates to the fact that it's way below. And so, you know, typically, what we have seen, at least what I've experienced has been, if it's a, I would say it this way, if it's a weird looking park, there's probably weird tenants. That might be the nicest way to say it. So, or if it's a dirty looking park, there's probably, you know, you can use the same word there, those kind of tenants. So we want to have a clean park. We want to have, you know, quality. We want to show 
of responsibility and responsiveness to the tenants. And, um, and, and again, like I said, it's a win-win proposition. Definitely. Rudy, what does the future of mobile home park investing look like? Let's talk a little bit about this 3D housing and how you see that fitting in. Would love your opinion. Yeah, for sure. We've, we've been, thank you for that. We've been researching other home uh, manufacturing options. So it's, again, it's kind of the, you know, back to the, you know, where does, you know, how do we move the road instead of, you know, the other way around. And, and one of the obstacles we found recently has been the prices of mobile homes have skyrocketed, just like anything else in the country, you know, with inflation, but it seems as though the mobile homes and, and the construction industry has been hit particularly hard with rising costs. And so as an example, a home that I could have bought two and a half years ago for 45 to 50,000 is now 70 to 72,000, some, somewhere in that range. I mean, so those are, those are pretty incredible jumps in costs. And, and that is really difficult. That's a, that's a high hurdle for, for um, operators to get over. And so we've been doing a bit of research about 3D printing because it takes a lot of expense out of uh, the building process. It, takes, uh, it can also um, improve the, or reduce the appreciation um, of the mobile homes. And so, you know, I think probably most of your listeners know that the you know, mobile homes themselves will depreciate quite rapidly. They're just like driving a new car off a lot. And so you drive a new car off a lot. In many cases, it, it depreciates a third or whatever the percentage is in the first year. Well, same thing with a mobile home. And so with a 3D printed home, if we can do that with concrete for the walls and the, you know, in the uh, essentially the flooring, and then we can finish the, the roof off and finish the interior off with traditional building materials, we can actually, if we don't um, come in under uh, expense, you know, for the same size product or similar looking fuel product, um, we'll be on par with what it would cost us. But the good news is they're not going to depreciate. And so, you know, we see there's there's a, a lot of upside um, in this potential. And you know, you and I were talking before the before the podcast about some people are seeing that as a threat to the mobile home um, industry. We actually think it probably dovetails in perfectly, and there's probably a tremendous opportunity for um, 3D printed homes and mobile home parks. And what that's I very would, cool. Yeah, what I would love to do is actually buy the printer and do it and vertically integrate. Well, we'll see. We're not there yet, but that's that's something we're exploring. Tell us, what do you think is the time frame before this becomes a reality? Yeah, I'd say it's we're probably a year out before it becomes reality for us. Um, you know, there's there's a lot and in most of that limitation at this point is going to be on you know city councils or planning boards planning and zoning boards that probably aren't ready for this technology because it's so new um, there are plenty of communities that are a little more progressive that are that are comfortable with some of these three 3d printed homes and technology and, and what it looks like and how it works um, and so I think it's a little bit of a shot in the dark in terms of, you know, whether some of the areas that we operate in are going to be ready for this kind of an approach. And, you know, so that could be what slows us down. But, um, but we're very interested in pursuing that 3D printed housing and not only selfishly so we can fill some of the, you know, the vacant pads in our parks, but we see the vacant pads in other people's parks right near us too. So we could, we could see this being a, a nice little niche that could last for a few years. 
Yeah, the one thing, the one hangup I would I would consider just because we looked at the tiny homes pretty aggressively yep. a few years ago, and the HUD licensing is a big deal, and the local municipalities really want to make sure that you know HUD's behind them because yep. uh, you know just for safety and things like that. Yep. Um, but what is? I mean, I'm I'm curious because I haven't even looked at the 3D option. What does something like that cost? You know, like fully built, ready to go. Is it truly affordable? you know, with utility hookups and everything, uh, Mm -hmm. or does it become, you know, like a, like a single family home? Yeah, it, it, um, from what we've seen and the research that we've done, and and of course these, you know, this data can change by the day, of course, right? So it depends on the cost of concrete, depends on, you know, who you can find it to actually do the work and all those kinds of things. But our research has shown that a comparably size, so if you think of, you know, a 14 by 60, 14 by 60 or 16 by 80 type, you know, footprint of a standard mobile home, we believe that that can be printed and manufactured and livable probably in the, you know, in the mid forties to mid fifties. And so Hmm. like mentioned, you know, if we're paying 72,000 for the box now, plus another 15,000, 17,000 for setup on a home, we feel pretty good about our, about those numbers and getting ourselves in a, you know, in a, in a good place. And so like we're early, we're early in the, in the process and the, in the research, but I think um, we feel really good about the potential. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. Sure. Rudy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I think you, you shared a ton. Uh, if our listeners would like to get a hold of you uh, or Sawgrass Capital Partners, what is the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I think there's two Two ways they can get a hold of us. One is on our website, sawgrasscapitalpartners.com. And capital is with an A. I'll move out of the way if people are looking and watching the video. So it's C-A-P-I-T-A-L, um, as opposed to capital, like a capital city. But they can get us there, or they can find me on LinkedIn at Rudy Kurtler on LinkedIn, R-U-D-Y-C-U-R-T-L-E-R. Awesome. Rudy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Andrew, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Would you like to see Mobile Home Park value-add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at PassiveMHPInvesting for photos and awesome videos from our recent Mobile Home Park acquisitions. Once again, that's at PassiveMHPInvesting on Instagram. See you there.